Hi, this is Renee Christensen, and this is the Training Them Wisely Discipling Kids podcast. I'm the author of Training Them Wisely Discipling Kids, my new book that's out on Amazon. And if you haven't already, I hope that you will head over there and check it out. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest. It's Israel Wayne from Family Renewal. Israel Wayne is a father of 11 who is passionate about defending the Christian faith and developing a biblical worldview. He is the director of Family Renewal and author of the books Raising Them Up, Parenting for Christians, and Pitching a Fit, Overcoming Angry and Stressed Out Parenting, among others. More information may be found at www.familyrenewal.org. So those of you that have been listening to me or have read my book know that biblical worldview is something that I am very passionate about as well. So I am so excited to get to speak to Israel about this today. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Israel. And I am so excited to get to talk to you about how we can keep our kids in the faith. And that's something that's very important for me as a mom. I know that's important for you as a father. And um, so what percentage of church youth do leave the church? Well, there are three different studies that independently came up with the same statistic. Mm -hmm. So I think it's pretty accurate. Uh, Pew Research, Barna Group, and Lifeway, which is the research arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, mm -hmm. they all say 70% um, nationally. There are some denominations that give different numbers. Um, I've heard leaders from the Assemblies of God say that they estimate about 65% of their church youth leave the church somewhere around high school graduation. The PCA, the conservative Presbyterian evangelical denomination, the largest one, um, uh, Presbyterian Church in America, they, they say they lose about 65%. And then um, the Southern Baptist Council on Family Life um, some years back said that they lose 88%. Wow. So the Southern Baptists, ironically, are, while they are some of the more concerned about Bible doctrine mm -hmm. and all that, they actually lose the highest rate of young people uh, of any of the evangelical Christian denominations. But the national average seems to be about 70%. That is a lot. I actually went to a conference for um, student ministers and elementary ministers a few months back, and they talked about that statistic. And I hadn't realized that statistic. And they actually had me write down the names of 10 kids in my class that I was teaching. And then they had us cross out seven of them. And that just, I was like, nope, <laughs> that is not an option. I love these kids. I love these families. And we've got to make sure that we're able to keep I mean, I want all of them to stay in the church. You know, you get so invested and especially whenever you're looking at your own kids, you're so invested in them as well. But also the kids that I work with in the community, I want them to be able to stay in church. So what steps can we take as parents to help ensure that our child isn't one of those statistics, that they are ones that stay firm in their faith, that stand strong no matter what comes at them, that they want to keep coming to church and participating in it? Okay, so there's a lot to that. First of all, let me run a disclaimer. Um, I think it's very important to say up front that as Christian parents, we don't have any guarantees. No, we don't. So as much as we would like to, um, mm -hmm. we cannot follow a formula that guarantees us parenting success. Mm -hmm. Parenting is not a scenario where you mix in these ingredients and you bake it for this amount of time at this temperature and out pops the perfect cake every time. It's not how that works. I wish it yes. was. Um, so we don't have any guarantees um, regarding parenting success. 
um, you can literally do all the right things and have your young people make choices that are not wise and are not godly. So there's that. Um, But there are things that the scripture commands us to do, and we should Mm -hmm. do those things um, regardless of, of outcome. But interestingly, also, there's a lot of research that has been done, and there are certain things that statistically um, show probability or likelihood uh, towards um, giving our keeping our child on that trajectory. Mm-hmm. In other words, there are inputs that tend to affect outcomes. There are things that we can do that will negate our children away from Christianity, and there are things that we can do that will help to solidify them towards our faith. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's there's a number of things. There's a lot of things um, that are positive that we can do, that we should do. Um, one thing that, is a, that I'm a big supporter of is the importance of doing family devotions. Yes. I think that's so important. Uh, I think it's one of the most important things that I do as a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's had huge influence um, on the lives of, of our children. Um I think encouraging them to have their own Bible study, their own Bible time, yes. um, having them memorize the scripture. Uh, my yes. children have memorized a, a large portion of the New Testament. Um, most of them have. Uh, and that's really been not something I can take credit for. That's been more a uh, result of them being involved in a Bible quizzing program mm-hmm. through our church and, and um, you know, an area church quiz di- district. We encourage them in that, but the competitive aspect of being on a team and having teammates and uh, a schedule and practices and all that has really helped to motivate them to do that. And and having God's word inside of them, I think is very significant. Um, Obviously their friends, their peers, like those are huge influences uh, for negative or positive. Mm -hmm. But in terms of studies, um, the Gen 2 survey, which I would encourage people to Google search, they can look up G-E-N, the number two, and then survey. And there's a PDF document that they'll find in Google that has a bunch of pages with lots of different different slides. But it's the largest survey of churched millennials to date. There were about 10,000 participants in this study. So it's it's actually a massive um, selection group. I mean, in research, if you have a thousand participants in a study, uh, that's considered overkill. Um, and and so this one has ten times that. So wow. you really have great statistical accuracy. And there's one page on there in particular where they talk about um, inputs and outcomes. And so they have outcomes being things like um, profession of faith, a satisfaction in life as adults, um, Christian behavior being consistent with their profession, biblical worldview. In other words, do they think and see life from a biblical perspective? Uh, Do they have a close relationship with their parents and believe similar to their parents in their later years? Um, Are they contributing positively to their community? Are they involved in, in civic and community life? Like there's all these things that we're looking for saying as parents, like what would define success for us? And those are all on the list. And so we tended to look for things that would that would uh, be encouraging towards those outcomes mm-hmm. and things that would be discouraging against those outcomes. And some of the things that were discouraging against those outcomes were surprising. Um, so the most devastatingly negative towards 
every single one of those outcomes was children being involved in public school. And I know that that's extremely controversial. I know that that offends a lot of people, but please go to the Gen 2 survey and read the study. Um, I'm not giving my opinion here. Yes. I'm saying that's what the study shows, that it has a massively negative influence towards all of those outcomes. Um, and then as, as a totally separate, completely unrelated study, the Nehemiah Institute has also tested students on biblical worldview since the late 1980s, and they give the results of their studies. And you can see um, correlation, even though it's a completely different set of metrics, it's a totally different analysis tool. Um, they also found that public schooling was extremely negative towards all of those outcomes. The one that was really surprising, though, was as a negative, was Christian schooling. That Christian schooling, rather than equipping young people to be Christians and believe in Christianity and follow Christianity, it actually negates against Christian belief, against Christian behaviors, against their beliefs being similar to their mom and dad. Um, it actually is only like just a few percentage points higher than um, government-controlled schooling. Um, that was shocking, I think, to most people who looked at, at these studies. And so, again, the Gen 2 survey and uh, NehemiahInstitute.com, both of those um, studies have the same information. They just tracked it in very different ways. So, um, you know, inputs matter, right? And um, not included so much in those studies, but I think self-evident um, and something we can find from other sources is arts and entertainment and media. So I was just at a conference uh, this weekend before last down in Tupelo, Mississippi at the American Family Association conference. I was a keynote speaker there. And one of the other keynote speakers was George Barna, who mm -hmm. is the leading researcher of all things related to American church. Yes. <laughs> and so Barna, you know, unloaded the latest research data on all of us and, um, uh, as morbidly depressed as we all felt as an audience, um, he reassured us that he was he was more depressed than all of us put together. So because <laughs> yes. this is his day job, he sees the information. <laughs> but he said some shocking things. Um, one of the things that was shocking was he said that there are like five or six major influences in a child's life. Right. So you have their school. You have uh, news media. You have um, their peers. You have the parents for Christian youth, you have the church, and then you have arts, entertainment, you know, and that includes like music, movies, that kind of video games, that kind of thing. He says one of these factors is more powerful than the other five all put together. And it, and it accounts for more than 50% of a child's worldview. And I won't put you on the spot to ask you, but I mean, all of us, our minds are like, which one? I have know? a guess, but <laughs> it turns out it was, it was arts, media, arts, entertainment. That's what I thought. Yes. And so that is a massive influence. And for most Christians, Christian youth, they don't have a separate media palette. I remember Ballot, uh, Barna talking about this in an older book that he wrote years ago called Think Like Jesus. Um, and, and I think at that point, he said that like only 2% of church youth have a separate media palette than their non-Christian friends. Mm -hmm. So in other words, they watch all the same movies, mm -hmm. they listen to all the same music, all the same video games, all the same. So it's anti-Christian. In other yes, words, it is. it's anti-Christian influence. 
So some things that are are definitely proven to be anti-Christianity in terms of the, of influence, government schools, surprisingly, Christian schools, and then um, arts, media, and entertainment, massively negative, but also massively influential. And, and then he also surprised us by saying that uh, for the most part, a child's worldview is cemented by the age of, and we all expected him to say 18, and we're kind of ready no, to nod much younger. Yes. He said 13. Yes. And so he said, we can, as sociologists, follow a young person's life, and we can basically tell you where they will be at the age of 30 and their beliefs and behavior mm-hmm. based on what they believe at 13. He said, with yes. just like alarmingly, surprisingly accurate yes. um, detail. Yes. That's stunning, you know, particularly as a parent, because like I have a 14 year old right now mm-hmm. and you just think to yourself, wow, that's just scary. Yes. Because <laughs> you feel like you have all this time. Yes. And I've read studies that have shown that it's even moving down closer to 12 um, recently because of the amount of input that children are able to get now. The amount right. of, you know, just they can find anything on Google, anything on Alexa. And they're no longer, they now have this information and it's more like parents are interpreting that information for them. If the parents are even aware of what they're watching and listening to. And when you talk about that music, those songs stay in your, your heart. They stay in your mind. I remember I worked at a grocery store in high school, those songs that they played nonstop on that record. I still know every word to those songs. None of them are Christian songs. And so those influences through the audio visual input that they're getting. And I think that we become desensitized to it a little bit, even, and don't realize as much what they're seeing. I almost never watch TV or movies. And so whenever I see stuff, I know I'm a lot more shocked about what I see than someone that looks at it every day and is able to see those things. But just to be able to have those talks with your kids about what influence they are having in those. And especially really, I mean, if you're looking through elementary school, pretty much as determining their biblical worldview at that age, you've got a lot of control over what your kids watch, what they see, what they listen to, to be able to have a positive effect on their biblical worldview later, if you're careful with what you do. Sure. So I haven't gotten yet to what is positive and what does make a difference. But before I do that, I, I just want to kind of have parents step back and and look at the their child's time mm-hmm. and who owns that. Because whoever owns your child's time owns influence. Time yes. is the most powerful force in all yes. of influence. I love that. Yeah. And so if you look at, we have 24 hours in a day. Mm-hmm. If you think about the fact that a child has to sleep for eight hours, that leaves 16 hours of wake, waking time. Most children spend seven and a half hours a day in school. And then when they come home from school, sociologists tell us they spend an additional seven and a half hours after school in screen time and multimedia. Mm-hmm. So they actually say for teenagers, it's, it's worse than that. It's more than that. It's 10 and a half hours of digital information compressed yes. into a seven and a half hour time space because they multitask. They have two information streams coming in at once. Mm-hmm. So you add seven and a half hours of school, seven and a half hours of screen time, that's 15 hours. So you say, well, who owns the rest of the space? Well, the government, U.S. Department of Labor Statistics says the average mom today spends an hour a day with her child and the average father is 29 minutes. Wow. That's the additional hour in the pie chart. And uh, when you think about the fact that the child's getting 15 hours a day of anti-Christian indoctrination, 
and mom gets an hour and dad gets 29 minutes a day, by default, the vast majority of Christian parents will never be the most influential force in their child's life by definition. Uh, prior to the COVID pandemic, only 2% of Christian parents homeschooled their children, which means that 98% of all Christian parents lost that seven and a half hour time block to somebody, some force that was not them. Yes. And so, you know, that's increased a little bit. We're, we're probably, depends on how you slice the, the uh, apple, but we're, we're probably close to 4% right now of Christian parents that are homeschooling. But even there, even for homeschooling parents, a lot of those parents still have that teenager who's getting seven and a half hours a day of screen time and multimedia. And so, again, you lose um, simply because your child is being influenced more by other forces, you know, their peers, multimedia, whatever. So there's a ton of forces that are warring against parents being the most influential force or factor in their child's life. And what parents have decided is the thing that works, the thing they have to do to make sure that they compensate for all of this anti-Christian indoctrination is they have to send their children to, to church. Um, this is where it gets tricky because the Gen 2 survey affirms that having your children in church in the early years and the younger and the later years, so elementary and teen years, um, is hugely beneficial for their spiritual growth and development. So church shows up to be a positive influence for young people, which we would expect, but, but there's a caveat to this. There are several research pro processes or programs um, that have looked at this and evaluated that children's church, Sunday school, and youth group mm -hmm. are actually negative. So Beamer Group is one of those, and there's a book yes. called Already Gone written by mm -hmm. Ken Ham. Uh, we sell that at our uh, familyrenewal.org uh, forward slash store web store, so familyrenewal.org. Uh, it's called, called Already Gone. And so if you want to really understand that, uh, he mm -hmm. does a really deep dive into how having your children in church, but not in church, having them in a children's program or youth ministry program actually is negative towards them embracing Christianity. And he gives a whole bunch of reasons why. Mm -hmm. um, again, that's super counterintuitive. And a lot of parents um, don't understand why that is. Um, and we can maybe talk about that a little bit more. But I think that's very important for parents because what parents have assumed is having, my, having your children in Sunday school, children's church, and youth group is going to compensate for all this anti-Christian indoctrination they're getting during the week. But in actuality, according to Beamer Group, it actually tends to inoculate them against Christianity as opposed to actually um, solidifying them in it. So Barna also spoke to this just this last weekend um, at the AFA conference. He said that only 12% of children and youth ministers in Christian churches in America have the most basic elementary foundation of a biblical worldview. Yes. Uh, only 12%. So, so that's huge. It is. Um, that's a, that's a huge part portion of it. Um, there, there's a whole bunch of factors, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to say that here's a, here's a few of the big ones. Um, one of which is the curriculum that's being used mm -hmm. usually is not actually thoroughly biblical. Exactly. It's actually problematic. Yes. So the Sunday school curriculum, the the courses that they're having the children take, 
um, oftentimes are either unscriptural or they're giving a very trivial view yes. of Christianity. Um, secondly, if 88% of all children's ministry and youth workers are completely anti-Christian in their actual biblical worldview, mm-hmm. uh, that's going to come across even if your curriculum is It good. is. Because the teaching does make a difference. Mm-hmm. It so does. So that's a huge issue. But then there's simply the factor that your your child is spending, you know, an hour a day with mom, 29 minutes a day with dad. And then on Sunday, just one more opportunity for them to not be with their parents, to not be influenced by their parents, to be influenced someplace else. Um, there, it just creates more of a disconnect between parent and child. Mm-hmm. And so um, there, there's um, in the Gen 2 study, what we found was like for homeschooling families who send their children to Sunday school, youth group, children's church, where the children are with the parents all day and presumably being discipled by their parents. Um, those children's and youth ministry programs tend to be a non-factor. Like they're not helpful. They're not hurtful. They're just sort of there. But for parents who don't disciple their kids and then send them to these children's uh, age segregated uh, programs, it actually ends up being a negative. And so um, there's, like I said, there's a lot of different factors and forces to all of that. And and I don't want to put that on the 12% who do have a biblical worldview and are doing their best. Um, And I'll also throw in the caveat that I was a a juvenile center chaplain for six years. And I found it extraordinarily helpful when we did find someone who had at least some nominal basic... um, biblical knowledge that we could build on that in the chaplaincy program. Whereas if they had no biblical knowledge at all, then you're starting from ground zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I think it was also telling to me that I would say probably 80 to 90% of all of the teens that I worked with for six years in juvenile center were church kids. Um, and so the church influence was not keeping them out of juvenile center. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so my viewpoint on all of that, just based on a lot of the research um, and studies that I've seen, is that uh, while I, I think the churches are very well-meaning, what the churches have failed to do is churches have failed to put back on parents their own responsibility to disciple their own children. Yes. And parents have abdicated that and yes. expected the church ministry workers to do it for them. Mm-hmm. And in most cases, that's simply not happening. It's not going to happen. Now, there's always the one-offs, right? You know, just like there's the, the the young person that I know who went to public school and his friend at public school led him to Christ, right? There's the one-offs um, or, or the, the young person who got saved at youth group and is now, you know, an upstanding Christian model citizen raising a godly family. Those happen. Thank God for that. So we're, we're grateful for that. But as a, um, a systemic approach, um, what we ultimately have to get back to is parents discipling their own kids. And so back to what works, speaking of the Gen 2 survey, um, three things when done together in tandem make a very powerful force of influence that statistically um, gives a, a massively overwhelmingly high statistical probability that your children will embrace Christianity. And that is um having a close relationship with your children in the early years and the teen years as both mother and father, both parents being equally important, having your children in church with you. Um, again, the studies seem to indicate in the main church service, not in the age segregated classes. 
um, and then homeschooling um, your children, those three things done together have proven to be very statistically overwhelmingly positive. Mm -hmm. When you remove any one of the legs from the stool, it tends to fall over, uh, which kind of makes sense to me because you you can sit on a, a stool with three legs. You can't sit on a stool with two legs or one leg. So close relationship with mom and dad, homeschooling and church involvement, but not you just sending them off somewhere, but like they're still part of the family unit within the church structure. Those things are overwhelmingly positive. And then there's a fourth that when you add that component, they're like 98% more likely to be Christian, 122% more likely to have biblical worldview, et cetera. And that is equipping them with some sort of very strategic and systematic biblical worldview and apologetics training Mm -hmm. through something like Truth Project, Worldview Academy, Summit Ministries, a biblical K-12 curriculum like Masterbooks. So mm-hmm. something like that, where they're learning how to defend their faith, yes, um, you know, in, in all different aspects of life. Uh, the Peers Test from Nehemiah Institute, a great resource to evaluate their strengths and weaknesses. Uh, Peers is actually an acronym that stands for Politics, Economics, Education, Religion, and Social Issues. And so it tests students not on what they know about those issues, but on what they believe about those issues and their ability to be able to defend their viewpoints from scripture. And it shows whether they think more humanistically or think more biblically. And most Christian parents test their students academically to find out what they know informationally, like what date did this happen and what number president was this and what's the capital of this state. But almost no parents test their students to find out what they believe. And so a biblical worldview assessment test from a group like uh, NehemiahInstitute.com is great. Or there's another one at uh, Renew a Nation, uh, which I think is renewanation.com org. Um, if not, just Google search. It's either renewanation.com or .org. Um, but having a resource like that is extremely helpful. It is. And just, I think what you came back to too, is just that biblical worldview. So people have to know the Bible and we've gotten to where in general, as a church, we do not read the Bible. That's why I'm so incredibly passionate about getting people to actually read the Bible to study it and to know it, because that just makes the biggest difference. So I started out with just a small group. It's grown to now that for the first time are reading their Bible every day. And that makes a huge difference in their life where they can actually have a biblical worldview and they can stand firm into these doctrines and know how to teach their kids. Because especially as parents, we've got to know, we've got to have a biblical worldview ourselves in order to teach it to them. So, yeah, I yeah, think that's I just want to go all... back to like what I was saying. We, we were in a church uh, a while back. And I was talking with one of the elders and he found a list in his church uh, from like 25 years ago. And it was 175 youth that were under the age of 18 in the church. And he thought, you know, this is like, at that time, I think it was like 20 years old. And so he asked the church secretary, see if you can trace down, you know, these young people and find out, are they involved in church at all today? So you have 175 youth. And he said out of the 175 youth that they could trace, uh, they, they could only find two that were still involved in church out of 175. I mean, w- what I think is that we have to start thinking massively different. Yes, because what we're doing is not working. Yes. About what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what most churches say is, oh, wow, that's terrible. We need, we need to start doing more children's and youth ministry. And... Um, I, I think we just really need to rethink what we've been doing. Um, I, I look at the the Bible quizzing program that my children have been in, and it's been massively helpful 
in terms of their spiritual development, spiritual formations. So it's not as though um, children being involved with other activities with other children their own age is endemically, you know, corrupting to their soul. But there's something about the way that we've been going about this that's fundamentally wrong. And, and I think that for the most part, the big issue is just the fact that uh, parents have completely abdicated yes. their responsibility to disciple their own kids, expected other people to do it. And then for the most part, the people who, who are supposed to be doing that are are simply not qualified and they're and the material that they're using is inadequate or or harmful. Um and so I know there are exceptions. Uh, again, you know, statistically, we have 12, 12% yes. are exceptions. So, yes. you know, for the listeners that are sitting there thinking, well, I know I'm an exception or I know my church is an exception. Well, first of all, I hope your church is an exception um, because 12% is not, not all that statistically high. And, and I think, you know, it's like I saw this study the other day. It said three, what was this? It was something like... Um, I think it was almost 80% of all parents believe that their local public school is exceptional. Well, if you just know anything about math and statistics, that's not how that works. No. <laughs> and then like 90% of all parents believe their child is at or above grade average, um, which is which that's not possible that's either not possible. based on numbers. No. And so I think there is this, our school's different, my child's different, um, our church is different, and we assume that all these maladies that we hear about and that we know about other people's churches and other people's situations don't apply to us, and yet probably most of the time they do. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's where I think we have to be willing to, you know, take take a look at these things. I, I remember uh, talking to one lady who came up to me after a parenting seminar that I did and she was uh, the leader of a very large children's ministry in Tennessee. And she told me that she had been children's ministry director there for 20 years mm -hmm. and had over a thousand young people in their church under the age of 18 and had been that way for over 20 years. And she said in over 20 years of doing children's ministry with over a thousand children a year, she said, I have never had one parent ever come to me and ask to see the curriculum that we use to teach their child. Oh, wow. And she said, that's just frightening to me. Yes. She said, uh, our church is so large that people don't even know our names. Like they just see this one wing of the building where it's like, drop your children off here and run. You know, that's, how, that's their thought process. And she said, they don't know our names. They don't know what we teach their children. She said, we could be systematic. That's scary, actually. She said, we really, could be systematically yeah. teaching their child every week that Satan is Lord, and they would never know it unless the child brought it up because they have never asked. She said, in fact, almost none of the parents who send their children to our children's ministry department even know if we do FBI background checks on our staff. She said, we do. Um, and she said, and I want to I assure you that we do the best job that we possibly can in having great curriculum and great lessons that are Bible-based and all of that. We're doing the best that we can. But she said, these parents just assume it. And she said, what it is, is that they just innately trust authority figures mm -hmm. um, from institutions that they've been taught to trust, whether it's the public school, whether it's medical professionals, whether it's the church, they just automatically turn their child over to the institution and trust that the institution knows best for their child. And, and that's what we do that. in America. We just send people off to learn. We send them off for piano lessons. We send them off for soccer lessons. We send them off for 
learn about Jesus, but it's actually biblically the parent's responsibility, first and foremost. And I want to clarify. I want to be very clear. I'm not saying it's wrong, sinful, immoral, uh, or or always unhelpful and unwise to involve other people in the process of Mm -hmm. us discipling and raising our children. Um, There's a place for that. There is. Um, I, I don't believe it takes a community to raise a child. I don't believe that. I believe it takes parents to raise a child. But there are um, people who sometimes can come alongside us in an area where we're weak and be helpful. And so in that sense, I think there's benefits to us recognizing, especially those that share our faith, um, that we can you know, help each other in those situations. So I, I'm not trying to say uh, that's always wrong, but that is something that should be a supplement to what we as parents are doing. Exactly. Um, as opposed to a replacement for the parents. And there's this thin line, right, between delegation and abdication. Mm-hmm. And what I find is that almost all Christian parents have abdicated yes. their place as Christian parents. And they think they've delegated. And they don't and even so, realize it. Yeah. Yeah. They So they, they just simply have have not, they are not anywhere close to being the most influential force in their child's life. So I understand that like this kind of information is is very sobering and and I'm throwing out sound bites, but I've been studying this kind of thing for 30 years. So I'm I'm deeply saturated in all this kind of information. And so I've had lots of time to think about it, ruminate it on it. I also do um, parenting seminars all around the country. I meet somewhere between 10 and 20,000 families a year. I talk to them, I hear their stories. So I'm not just like, you know, shooting from the hip with, oh, here's an off the top of my head opinion about this. Um, this is my life. This is what yes. I do. It's, it's you know, for 30 years now, it's what I've done full time. Um, and so I understand some of this just sounds maybe alarmist um, or like, nah, it can't be that bad. You know, we, we can't. Well, here, here's one other thing. Barna said that under the age of 18. Uh, well, actually, under the age of 29, let's put it that way. Um, under the age of, of 29 in America, less than 1% of eight, of young adults, uh, children, young adults under the age of 29 have a biblical worldview. Yes. It's less than 1%. Yes. That means, you know, again, you take that list of 100 and you, not, you just strike out 99 names mm-hmm. of everyone you know that's under the age of 29 and say they don't have a biblical worldview. Um, we got here somehow and we won't get out of this situation by just doing all the same things that we've done. No. Um, it will take some really radically different approaches to things um, for us to change. And, and I think it does go back to parents have to really take full responsibility for the discipleship of their children. Um, and yes, you can use other resources that aren't you. So hear me on that. I'm not saying it's wrong to use other resources. I use other resources. Sometimes it's a it's a video curriculum. Sometimes it's a book. Sometimes it's a class. Sometimes it's a tutor. Sometimes it's, you know, a friend who's mentoring or teaching my child. So I'm not saying like, as a parent, I could be the only person who's ever teaching my child anything. I'm not saying that. But at the at any moment where I feel like I can just put it in cruise control because somebody else is doing that for me, um, I'm highly mistaken. Yes. Uh, so very much so. And once again, it comes back to the parents knowing something as well to be able to talk. All right. So 
I think we've kind of covered how we can I probably them... covered all the questions that you have yes, I was in my say. monologue. So I really enjoyed getting to talk to Israel Wayne, and I hope that you guys have learned a lot from him. I am definitely thinking about different things that he said. And next week, we're going to be talking with him about how to avoid legalism. It's something that I heard him speak on, and I'm excited to let y'all hear about his difference between house rules or family rules and then God's law and how to avoid legalism with that. So if you haven't already, I hope that you will follow us and like us for this podcast, and I will talk to y'all next week.